My name is Keith Beavers, and um, guys, it's not Yoda, okay? We don't know what it is yet. I understand it's cute to call it Yoda, because it looks like, okay. I get it, it's for another podcast. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode five of Vine Paris Wine One One podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. What is happening? So I know I said we would be doing white wine this week, but I, you know what? It's it's summer out, it's warm, and I know you guys really want to know about the pink stuff. I know. So instead of white wine, we'll do that next episode. Today, we're going to focus on the pink hue rosé. What does it mean? It's your favorite wine. Let's get into it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Fleur de Mer Rosé. Did I say that right? I hope so. My French is terrible. Throughout the rolling hills and valleys of Provence, fields of lavender thrive in the warm sun and fresh, crisp seaside air. In French, Fleur de Mer means flower of the sea. Huh. I didn't know that. And our wine celebrates the region's famed flowers as well as its historical tradition of crafting incredible rosé wines. Each sip of Fleur de Mer rosé engages the senses with bright fruit notes, crisp acidity, and a cleansing dry finish. For a taste of true provincial rosé wine, reach for Fleur de Mer rosé. Yeah, it's, it's just... It's just crazy. I, I just... How? I mean, first of all, how were we not into rosé for so long as Americans? And then just like out of nowhere, we're into rosé. And we're not just into rosé. We are into rosé. I mean, this pink-ish hue of wine has taken the U.S. by storm. Is It's actually an understatement, man. I mean, this has just been crazy. I came up during the early aughts when, in, in wine. And man... It hit when it, I remember when it hit. It hit hard. I don't know. I feel like it was an article that Eric Asimov in the New York Times wrote about rose, or there was just some. Talk, I don't know what was going on, but it went from restaurants not even be able to sell, being able to sell rose to just like, what kind of rose do you have? And everyone's like, my God, what kind of rose do I have? <laughs> Dust it off. Actually, don't dust it off because rosé is not really age-worthy. It's actually just for drinking right now, which we're about to get into. I mean, it's become so popular that in 2014, for some reason, I don't know how this works, but the Hamptons ran out of rosé in the summer of 2014. It was like, and it was such a big deal that the industry was reporting on it. Like, headline, the Hamptons runs out of rosé. Like, what? And as popular as this thing is, rosé, where did it come from? How did it just pop into our lives? And we're just like, oh my God, I love pink. When you're researching rosé, it's a little bit weird because it's not like, there's not like a timeline, you know, but there are moments in history you can kind of look to to get a sense of how this thing became popular. Now, I know we all know about White Zinfandel, which I swear we're going to get to, but the thing is like before White Zinfandel in America, we had other rosés we were into, but we weren't into them because they were rosés. We were into them because it reminded us of a European lifestyle. There are these Portuguese wines called Lancers and Matus. They were sweet. They were different. They were white and they were rosé, but... But that, that was kind of the first idea that we had as rosé, and then White Zinfandel came along. But way before that, there are some fun theories, like, for example, in Marseille, 
which is in southern France, just north of that is the region of Provence. I think we all understand, and you know, we know about Provence wine, Provence rosé, which is Provence wine is not just rosé; it's also red and white. But Marseille was once a Roman settlement, and because it was a Roman settlement, there were a lot of roads going in and out of the area through trade. And as this area gained more grapes, there was, you know, at some point the rosé wine was kind of not developed, but it was consumed because it was a warm area, kind of makes sense, and the wine was lighter, and also because the wine just so happened to go very well with the diet of the area, which is just a lot of seafood, oil, and garlic. So, you know, makes sense. Also, France actually has a um, an appellation or a wine region that is dedicated solely to rosé in the southern Rhone. It's called Tavel. I think I'm saying that right again. My French pronunciation is terrible. And the story goes that the Sun King, um, Henry XIV, came through Tavel on a horse, and uh, he was given a glass of this Tavel Rosé wine, and he took it down in one sip, the entire glass, without even getting off of his horse, and proclaimed, I like this wine. And usually back in the day when kings proclaim they like wine, it's a big thing, and people document that. And just like in the Provence area of France, the Southern Rhone is hot, so this Rosé wine was popular because it was a quenching wine to consume in the warm region. So, you know, there is a pattern of Rosé refreshment going on here. I mean, a sweaty king on a horse took down a glass of rosé without getting off his horse because he was thirsty and hot and it was refreshing. So that's kind of how that works. And then in 1936, when uh, France was creating all of its AOS appellations, that's when Tavel was awarded its appellation status. And now to this day, it is a only rosé producing region. And I know I said rosé doesn't age, but I lied a little bit because in this region, they make rosé so they can, it can age like five plus years. So obviously rosé has been around for a long time. It's not very documented, but you can imagine if they're doing it in Provence, they were doing it in Tavel, they were doing it all over the world because of the way it's made, which we're about to get into. How is this pink thing made? Well, the thing about rosé is it's not just pink. I mean, even though rosé in French means pink and rosado means pink in Spanish and rosato means pink in Italian, sort of. In the Oxford Wine Companion, Jedi Master of Wine Jancis Robinson states that rosé is, quote, the production of wines whose color falls somewhere between red and white. So that's a spectrum right there. There are rosés that are dark fire engine red all the way to what the wine industry calls a pale ballet slipper pink. <laughs> How sophisticated. And generally, it's a pretty simple explanation because now we know how red wine is made. We understand that during the winemaking process for red wine, there's while the fermentation is happening, that thing called maceration is happening, that as the alcohol is produced and it warms the environment in that vat, the new wine starts to leach pigment from the skin of the red wine grapes into the juice, therefore making red wine. So imagine what it would be like if you only did that for a short period of time, meaning you're not going to extract all that pigment, but only half of that pigment. That, wine lovers, is how rosé is made. Let's get into it. So there are 3.5 ways of making rosé. <laughs> You're like, okay, Keith, calm down. What does that mean? Well, it'll make sense in a second. 
the general idea of making rosé is that you want to limit the amount of time the juice is in contact with the red wine grape skins. And there are three ways to make that happen. Because what's going to happen is you're going to separate that juice from the skins and you're going to vinify that juice without the skins. This is very, very similar. Actually, it's how white wine is made, which we'll talk about next week. The first way this is done is it's actually the most popular way it's done, which is what I was just talking about, is that sort of half maceration. It's called the short maceration. And what winemakers will do is after they crush these red wine grapes, they will let the skins and the juice hang out for a certain amount of time, and they will monitor it, and they will decide what color of pink they want, and they'll draw that juice off of the skins, and it's going to be whatever pink they, you know, whatever pink in the spectrum of pink that they have, and they'll vinify that wine like white wine. It's called a short maceration. Another way of making rosé is called the saigné method. Now, I'm, again, I'm probably butchering that, but in French, that means the bleeding, which as a horror fan always reminds me of like the title of a 1970s cult B horror film. The bleeding from the depths of the wine. Yeah, I have nothing. The way this works is a winemaker will bleed the newish wine from the fermentation vat while the fermentation is happening. So they know at what time, just like the short maceration winemaker knows what time to draw the juice off of their skins, so too does the Saunier winemaker drawing out of the fermentation vat and then producing that pinkish wine, like a white wine, of course. Now, this method was traditionally used for winemakers to help make a more concentrated red wine. By drawing off this pinkish juice in the middle of the fermentation process, you're basically reducing the amount of juice with a still increased amount of anthocyanin, therefore making a darker, inkier wine. Put a pin in that for a second. We'll be talking about that in a little bit. White Zinfandel. Another way to make rosé that's not, I mean, it's common, but it's not crazy common, is called the direct press. And what's happening here is there's no maceration. You're just gently pressing the grapes so that the juice flows out of the vat and not coming into contact with the skins. You can never really not have direct contact with the skins. So the resulting wine is a sort of like, like a very kind of light, light pink. Sometimes it's called Von Gris or gray wine, which... Sounds weird, but it tastes delicious. So those are three common ways in which rosé wine is made. The point five, the reason I say point five is because I'll be talking a lot more about this in the sparkling wine episode, but this method is not used often and it's called just blending. You're blending red and you're blending white and you make a rosé. You know, it's not like, it's not like you're in, you know, in your college days. You're like, dude, I just made a rosé. Wow. You know, what'd you do, dude? Well, I took some white wine and then I took some red wine and I kind of carefully blended a little bit and now I have this rosé. Bro, genius. It's not totally like that, but it's kind of like that. It's actually pretty much like that. You take a finished white wine and a finished red wine, you blend it together. Now, it's not, it's, it's not as like... I mean, it's, it's done for cheap wine, but uh, in France, it's not legal to do this except for one place in Champagne. So when we get into sparkling wine, we'll be definitely talking all about that. So those are the ways that rosé wine is made. Your favorite pink-ish, it's a spectrum, hue. So, uh, you know, besides Tavel, the reason why rosé doesn't really age that well is because of what we just talked about. There's not enough going on in the wine to hold color, to hold the phenolics, not enough phenolics in there to do anything to age. And as it ages, it just kind of gets a little bit flat. Um, some, some rosés can last up to two years, but you really want to drink rosé when it's like in season, which is basically 
all year round because even though rosé doesn't doesn't actually age it's always the, the current vintage is always going to be available well into thanksgiving and i gotta say guys rosé for thanksgiving forget about it it's beautiful and speaking of thanksgiving speaking of the united states and speaking of our history with rosé after the whole Matus and Lancers thing happened, something happened out in California that created a new idea for us. And it wasn't rosé yet. We called it something called, we called it blush before we called it rosé. And here's a fun story. The wine industry in California in the 1970s was in a very weird, unique place. It wasn't until the late 1960s, like around 1968, that Americans finally after the repeal of the Volstead Act, after Prohibition was over, it took until like the late 60s for Americans to kind of get nice with dry red wine. I mean, the Matus and the Lancers sweet rosé type stuff was popular because we were used to sweet wines during Prohibition and it took a long time for us to kind of get back to just the dry wine thing. And as we were wrapping our heads around dry red or white wine and the Matus thing was kind of waning, we started making pinkish wines from red wine grapes and calling them white this and white that. And that kind of began around the time that Bob Trinchero was working as a winemaker for Sutter Home. And he was making Zinfandel, a red Zinfandel. And to make the wine darker and more concentrated, he would bleed off some juice in the middle of the fermentation and he would have this pink wine. At some point, a wine importer... Um, asked him if he would actually vinify that wine, and he did. So he just made this white, it was a white Zinfandel, but it was, it was kind of called white Zinfandel, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really known yet. And it's interesting because that kind of was like a foreshadowing of what was to come. In 1975, um, Bob Trinchero was making Zinfandel, just a red Zinfandel like usual, and something crazy happened. This is a phenomenon called stuck fermentation. And what happens is for some reason, the yeast inside that vat, they get overwhelmed before the wine is completed and they die. So what's happened, basically what's happening is halfway through the winemaking process or even before halfway through the winemaking process, the yeast die, the vat stops fermenting, and all you have is a big vat of sweet pinkish juice. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you, it's it's like it's so it's kind of like rosé, but it's sweet because it's it has all it's with all that sugar and stuff. So he didn't know what to do. So instead, what he decided to do was just vinify it, and the result was this dark dark pink sweet thing called what he named white Zinfandel. So this is around the time when it was white. There was white Merlot out there, white Zinfandel, white Cabernet Sauvignon, and. And so this is what was just going on. And, and these wines were sort of like a, they were just sort of like a, a, an alternative to the heavier red wines coming out of California because they were still a little bit sweet for the people who still dug sweet wine and they weren't Portuguese, they were, it was American. So now we have this American pink thing that we can enjoy and it's a little bit sweet and now we're all happy and we call it white Zinfandel or white Merlot or whatever. And as we know, white Zinfandel took off like a rocket and to this day, it has not, the sales have not dipped since the 1980s. White Zinfandel continues to be one of the best-selling wines in America. So a year later in 1976, by this point, it didn't take long. This white this and white that, this pink stuff was getting very popular. White Zinfandel, of course, was popular. White Merlot, white Cabernet Sauvignon. Some winemakers are like, this is, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. 
and one of these winemakers was Charlie Creck. He had a winery up in Sonoma called the Mill Creek Winery. And Jerry Mead, who was a wine writer, he had in LA, he had a publication called The Wine Trader. And he would come up to wine country, do line, you know, do lineups of wine so he could review them for the people that read his his, his thing. So he goes up to visit Charlie Creck at Mill Creek Winery, and he does a lineup of the Cabernet Sauvignon, and they're, they're talking. And uh, Charlie's like, hey, Jerry, I got this thing I'd like you to try. It's pink. It's made from Cabernet Sauvignon. But I just, I don't want to call it white Cabernet. I don't like what's going on with this stuff. I don't like this whole trend, but I just want you to try it. So they try this pink Cabernet Sauvignon, <laughs> and they, he, you know, Jerry's like, yeah, this is really good. Um, he's like, what would you call this thing? And they go back and forth, and then Jerry comes up with this word blush. He's like, it's kind of blush-colored, and they have a laugh. They say their goodbyes. They each go home, and then later that night... Charlie, the winemaker, can't get this idea of blush out of his head. So he calls his boy, Jerry Mead, and is like, I can't, I think blush is a great idea. And they both agree, like, this is a really good word for the category of these wines. And sure enough, a couple years later, I think it was like in the early 1980s, Charlie Creck trademarks the word blush for his wines. Now, he never held on to it or like sued anybody for using it, but that was the moment when America got a name for the pink wines we were making. So White Zinfandel became known as a blush. So all these wines became blush, and that's sort of like how we did it until at some point we started seeing more wines being imported from Europe. And I, you know, I don't know what wrote it's, it's sometimes it's thought that the domain Ott was the, uh, the winemaker that really made its name on the American market, but Rose came onto the Amer American market at some point in the late eighties and just kind of kept on being imported until like the nineties and the mid the late nineties. And then that's when it started, people started kind of picking up on it. And then of course, you know, the early aughts, we all know what happened. So then we started calling Rosé Rosé, and then Blush was kind of relegated to the sort of cheap stuff, if you will. There's, there's, you're not going to see a lot of white Merlot out there, but it's out there. I think Sutter Home does a white Merlot, but, you know, these are just sweet pink wines we call Blush. Now, Blush is a word that we use for the lesser of the Rosés. It's just the way it is. Rosé for us now is everything you guys like. And the great thing about rosé these days is you're getting rosés from everywhere, every part of the world, and it's just awesome. All different kinds of varieties that are people just playing around with stuff, being serious about it, being playful with it. It's, it's a really fun time for this particular hue. I mean, every year at Vine Pair, we do the 25 top rosés of the year, and every year we do it, the more diverse the list gets. So rosé's awesome. It's in a pink spectrum, you love it, and now you know all kinds of things about it. You know how it's made in the 3.5 ways. You get some fun historical little stories you can tell at parties. I mean, you guys got this knowledge, the confidence. I can just feel your confidence building. Whew, it's palpable. If you're picking up what I'm putting down, digging what I'm saying, go ahead and give me a rating on iTunes. If you feel like typing, go ahead and give me a review. Definitely subscribe and tell your friends. Let's get this wine podcast all the way up so everybody can learn more about wine. Thanks for listening, guys. Here's some credits straight up. Check me out on Instagram. It's at VinePairKeith. I do all my stuff and stories. And also, you've got to follow VinePair on Instagram, which is at VinePair. And don't forget to listen to the VinePair podcast, which is hosted by Erica, Adam, and Zach. It's a great deep dive into drinks culture every week. Now for some credits. How about that? <laughs>
Wine 101 is recorded and produced by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vinepair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mellon. And I also want to thank Daniel Grinberg for making the most legit Wine 101 logo. And I got to thank Darby Seaside for making this amazing song. I mean, listen to this epic stuff. And finally, I want to thank the Vinepair staff for helping me learn more every day. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This episode of Vine Pear is sponsored by Fleur de Mer Rosé. Throughout the rolling hills and valleys of Provence, fields of lavender thrive in the warm sun and fresh, crisp seaside air. In French, Fleur de Mer means flower of the sea, and our wine celebrates the region's famed flowers as well as its historical tradition of crafting incredible rosé wines. Each sip of Fleur de Mer Rosé engages the senses with bright fruit notes, crisp acidity, and a cleansing dry finish. For a taste of true provincial rosé wine, reach for Fleur de Mer Rosé. I'm just let this ride out.